The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we are very fortunate to have our guest, Michael Strong, with us. Michael is a pioneer in innovative education models, and he is the author of a new book, Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. Quite a claim there. And he's also co-founder of an organization called Flow Incorporated, and we're going to have him talk a bit about that and how it's related to the entrepreneurial spirit. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Cheryl. It's great to have you here today. So, tell me, the last time we spoke, you were in Senegal. Now, today, where are you today? I'm in San Francisco, California. Oh, well, you're right down the street. All right. Indeed. So um, I w- later, I would like you to actually tell us about a little bit about your um, situation in Senegal, kind of what you're working on there. It sounds fascinating. Before we get into that, though, um, let's talk about you and kind of how you got to where you are today. I learned as I was, you know, preparing for this show um, that you were very connected to innovative education models. You really. Mm-hmm at a very early age, started looking at um, a different way that education could be successful. What got you interested in the whole education perspective, and what took you to that? The simplest way to introduce that is the fact that I absolutely love learning and absolutely hate school. (laughs) So I'm I'm one of those educators who um, is actually to uh, destroy school as we know it, if I want to be a little bit provocative. Um, uh, no, when I was in uh, high school, my junior year of high school, I had a philosophy class where we read books and talked about them. And it was just so much fun that I couldn't believe that I had never done this before. And from that point forward, any class in which a teacher stood up in the front of the room and talked at me absolutely drove me crazy. So I discovered St. John's College in Santa Fe in Mexico, where all classes are taught by means of discussion. You just read books and talk about them for four years. And it sounded like so much fun I wanted to do it for college. As it turns out, my um, high school counselors talked me into going to Ivy Leagues because I had good test scores, and they said you can study everything at St. John's, at Harvard, that you wanted to study at St. John's. So I went to Harvard, and I was bored silly by having famous people talk at me. And after a year, I left and went to St. John's. And after I left St. John's, I uh, basically became evangelical about discussion in the classroom as opposed to lectures and uh, spent years in Chicago public schools training teachers how to lead Socratic discussions in Alaska public schools. And then I started a career starting new private and charter schools 
where the Socratic discussion is a key element, although eventually I got into the Montessori world, as many Montessorians see Socratic uh, discussions as an appropriate secondary school sequel to Montessori elementary education. Hmm. So it sounds like you know you were given the opportunity to really think which, you know, I mean, I dare say that in many schools today that is not something that is promoted. Critical analysis or thinking is really not promoted as much as memorize, you know, this content in order to have um, good grades on the test. And, you know, I wonder about how well that was received in the work that you have done. Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, as it turns out, my first book, I Have the Thought, from Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice is dedicated to independent thinkers everywhere, and I have a real passion for independent thinking. Um, you know, one of the things that I say when I work with uh, kids in school is that the only time I've been as bored in school uh, as an adult is when I go to the DMV and wait in line or something. Other than that, life is exciting, real, dynamic. And for me, thinking about ideas is exciting, real, dynamic, and often students find that. So the students tend to love it. That said, I've had some parents react very negatively. I was in a public school in Alaska, uh, Soldatna, I believe, where a mother came and said to me that your questions cause confusion. Confusion comes from Satan. Therefore, what you're doing is satanic, and I'm going to make sure you get kicked out of the public schools. And uh, indeed, she was successful at that. At the time, I tried to argue with her on a kind of uh, professional level, and I said, well, um, in the 21st century, people will need critical thinking skills for their jobs. And she responded by saying, I am a housewife. I don't need critical thinking skills. My husband works on an oil platform. He doesn't need critical thinking skills. So I'm going to get rid of you. So, you know, there, there are people out there who really don't want to have anything to do with critical thinking. But there are, fortunately, there are also many people who do. And so one of the reasons I moved from public schools to private schools is that uh, in a public school, uh, two or three aggressive parents can kill a program, even if you spent five or ten years implementing it. Sure. Uh, whereas in a private school, you can attract, or a charter school, you can attract families who really want their children to think critically. And it's, you can do a better, deeper program, and you don't have to you know, be attacked all the time. Hmm. So could I assume that, um, given that that is your perspective on education, and you really want people to think for themselves, that you carry that over into your belief around the workplace and corporations and how people do business? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, actually, just a little anecdote there. One of the things that students sometimes said when I got them to think for themselves, and they were very aware that what I was doing, they'd say, no, you're, you're making us think. And, you know, if we start thinking, then who's going to dig ditches and you know, fix toilets and so forth. And I said, you know, in the real world, actually, there are all sorts of jobs where it's important to think for yourself. And, you know, when I was in college, I waited tables in a number of different kinds of restaurants. And I found, in fact, that even, even as a waiter or a dishwasher even, there were some restaurants where they really much wanted me to take think for myself, figure out problems. And there were other restaurants where, in fact, it was very hierarchical. They wanted me to do things exactly as I was told, and if I didn't submit, they would fire me. And so I, I think, you know, some people think, oh, maybe at Google you will have people that think for themselves, but we do need kind of passive, you know, obedient people in other kinds of jobs. Well, you know, maybe, but in my experience, um, any kind of job can benefit from having 
uh, independent thinkers who take initiative. And I think over time we're going to see more and more employers who seek out those kind of employees, and those are going to be the best jobs no matter what sector of the economy they're in. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, your book, Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems, um, I would. I haven't read the book, but I would guess that um, there's a lot of around critical thinking in there. But um, tell me what you mean by conscious capitalists. Sure, sure. I mean, John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, who's the co-founder of Flow, you know, really leads leads that side of uh, what we do because, of course, uh, he's a practicing conscious capitalist. And so the distinction is there's. There's one, to some extent, partially myth, partially version of business where it's simply a mechanical profit-maximizing machine. And you take MBAs who have been trained to you know, maximize quarterly returns and they crank their numbers and do whatever it takes to make that happen. And nobody is thinking about the big picture. Nobody is thinking about moral issues. Nobody is thinking about a deeper purpose. Um, John and I and the other people in this movement, we're developing a movement around conscious capitalism. We've had a conference last fall. We're having another one next week, and we'll have another one coming fall. Uh, the conscious capitalist movement is all about people who, just as in our personal lives, we want to be conscious rather than acting out of blind impulse. Uh, so, too, in our professional lives as business people, we want to be conscious and thinking about what is our d- deeper purpose, um, how do we care for the stakeholders in the system, uh, how can we act as a steward leader rather than an egotistical maniac? You know, many of the principles that the consciousness movement has bought, brought to you know, everyday life in terms of mindfulness and uh, empathy and really being aware of the consequences of our actions, we're saying all of these all of these perspectives can be carried over into business, should be carried over into business, and business will be a much more positive influence on the world, as well as a lot more enjoyable as we develop more conscious businesses. Mm. Well, you know, in the last five years or so, um, things have begun to, what I call, disintegrate. You know, all of our structures and systems that we depended on for so long have little by little begun to disintegrate and then accelerated that disintegration in the last year and a half. You know, when you see the um, economic system being so prime for change, because that, that, that is what I see is happening right now. People are saying, well, if this hasn't worked, what will? What do you think is going to get us out of this? Is it the conscious capitalism? Well, and it's a complex issue. And just to start with, um, I'm, I'm less inclined. I certainly understand that we've had a, a collapse. But I also think there's long-term continuity. And so one of the things I always get people to focus on is long-term rather than short-term. Uh, everything I think that we want to do consciously is long-term. And in terms of that, I would say that the role of meaning and purpose has been steadily growing in people's lives for 40 years now. Uh, you know, I'm a great believer, as is John, in Maslow's hierarchy. And so as our basic needs for food, shelter, security, um, you know, an emotional validation gradually become more and more satisfied, more and more of us are going to look for meaning and purpose as um, you know, actualization is the point of our lives. And you can see the green purchasing movement, the green consumer movement, which has been growing for 20, 25, 30 years now as part of that. Um, the social entrepreneurship movement has been growing for a long time. 
you know, despite the ups and downs of the economy, and yes, we've had a collapse, but I, I think we're going to keep having collapses every once in a while. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I, I feel as if the most fundamental dynamic that we're seeing is as more and more Americans and people in other parts of the world have their basic needs met, more and more of them are going to want to, to devote an increasing part of their professional life as employees, their uh, consumption life as people who do buy things, we're always going to buy things, and their life as investors as want a larger and larger proportion of all of those investment, consumption, and employment to be involved a deeper purpose and meaning. Just on the on the you know collapse sort of thing, uh, another perspective I have is even as I'm sure that uh, an increasing percentage of the population is going to be conscious, I think that there's a certain percentage of the population that may never be conscious, and this may separate me from some optimists in this respect. There's a, an anecdote I report in the book about um, King Island Alaska, which was not uh, didn't have white people on it until mid-century, so there were elders from the time before white people came, and they talk about how every once in a while, a young man would be a jerk, and they'd tell him, yeah, people would tell him to stop, he'd keep being a jerk, the elders would keep telling him to stop, and eventually somebody would just go and kill him, and the whole community would be happier, <laughs> and that's a harsh, harsh sort of thing, but I, I think, you know, and I've seen data that perhaps one percentage of the population are sociopaths, and while the rest of us are becoming conscious and doing good, I think that we're always going to have... Uh, Certain, you know, one percent out of a nation of three hundred million is a lot of sociopaths. Out of a world of six billion, seven billion, it's a huge number of sociopaths. So I think that we do need legal structures to control the sociopaths, and always will, even as optimistically we'll get towards thirty, forty, fifty, seventy percent of our population being conscious consumers and employers and employees and investors. So those sociopaths don't always show up as. Um derelicts on the street, they sometimes show up in corporations and you know. Oh, Wall Street. I mean if you're a sociopath, how stupid to um how stupid to rob a bank. I and mean, if you're a smart sociopath, you absolutely go and uh you know, go where the money is. Yeah. Uh, and it's a shallow version to say you rob a bank. The smart thing is to go and be completely unscrupulous uh, in Wall Street or right in a corporation. Mm-hmm. Or in politics. They're all over the place. They go where sure. the money and power are. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I really want to talk more about money and power and Flow Incorporated when we come back right after this message. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the 
the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcast to you every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Michael Strong today, co-founder of Flow Incorporated. Now, let's talk a little bit about Flow, Michael. Um, You co-founded this organization with John Mackey, who many people know as the CEO and co-founder of Whole Foods um, Incorporated. And you, how do you know, John, how you guys I know are really close friends and colleagues, you know, where did your relationship begin? Well, it turns out that there's a, an entrepreneur named Gary Hoover who created Bookstop, the first big box bookstore uh, in Austin, and his first bookstop was next to John's second Whole Foods in Austin in the late 70s. Uh, Gary and I had met because we both had an interest in Chicago economic education and developed a friendship, and at one point, Gary and I were talking about education projects. And he said that he wanted to create a target of education because he likes, you know, high quality, low price for the masses. And I said, well, I wanted to create the whole foods of education, kind of innovative, cultural, creative, high-end education. Mm-hmm. He said, well, it turns out I know this guy. So he introduced me to John. John and I had lunch. And quickly, John and I discovered that um, on the we were both very much, as it were, uh, idealists from the 60s. John's a bit older than I am, so he really is. I'm a bit younger, so I don't quite... But, uh, you know, peace, love, you know, human potential movement, uh, environment, um, you know, explore cultures, all that sort of stuff really excited and resonated for us, makes the world a better place. Um, But at the same time, we were both free market libertarians. John and I absolutely believe that entrepreneurs and markets are solution and not government. And so uh, in terms of controlling things anyway, uh, we'll go more into complications there later if you want. But um, John and I uh, found that we went to our pro-market friends, Raw Raw Market. They were cynical and dismissive of our idealism, our desire to make the world a better place, our caring about, uh, you know, helping the poor and caring for the environment. Conversely, when we went to all our do-gooder friends, most of them were very uh, skeptical of or negative about entrepreneurs and markets and thought, you know, corporations were evil and business was evil and no way it could do good and so forth. And so the way John and I joke is we wanted a club where we could belong, um, since both our friends on both sides didn't much uh, like half of us. So that turned out to be a huge uh, personal alignment between the two of us, and yeah, we've become great friends and colleagues ever since. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, so in developing Flow Incorporated, it was about 2002, right, when you guys had yep. this um, vision, and you you created the the entity of Flow to advance this vision. And tell us a bit more about the vision. Sure. Um, our tagline, which my colleague Jeff Klein created, is liberating the entrepreneurial spirit for good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I explain that by saying promoting entrepreneurial solutions to world problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we very much believe in entrepreneurship, not just as for-profit entrepreneurship, but also social entrepreneurship spiritual entrepreneurship, artistic entrepreneurship. Uh, For us, an entrepreneur is somebody who takes the initiative to create an organization or movement or change of some kind. Uh, Really, for me, creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship form 
um, a deeply related triad. So we look to create, a, a, in one sense, a club, in one sense, a network, another way of vision for people who believe in taking initiative to make the world a better place. Um, our other tagline is from Michelangelo, criticized by creating. Now, to some extent, when I was frustrated with you know, the fact that I couldn't create lasting programs that I loved in public schools, I just started creating schools on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was very empowering to realize instead of complaining about the fact that my programs were being killed and kicked out, I could just go create something. Uh, one of the anecdotes I like to, or one of the analogies I like to suggest is, suppose one had protested Safeway's food in the 70s instead of creating Whole Foods. Um, decades of protesting the fact that Safeway was selling white bread would have gotten us nowhere, whereas as is, Whole Foods has been a tremendous transformative power in terms of how we eat, and now Safeway and Albertsons all have their organic and natural food section. Mm-hmm. So we're gathering together all the people who want to be part of a network to, you know, that's based on a vision um, around the idea of criticizing and creating, and we have an extraordinarily interesting and diverse network of such people. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because, um, you know, though protest and bringing people's voice to issues is important because it it helps people understand, you know, what's really going on, um, there is that sense that, you know, trying to get the energy you put toward stopping something or stopping an action um, does not lend itself to... Uh, replacing it with something else. And it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, yeah, stuff has to stop, it has to change, but something has to occur first in order for there to to be some reason for the stopping and the changing to occur. And so some people need to step out. They need to take action themselves. Just do what you want. Don't worry about what the other people should stop. Is that what I hear you saying? Sure. I mean, there, there are all sorts of interesting issues there, and I would certainly agree. Sometimes protesting and shouting is useful and necessary, but I think that uh, there, there was kind of a, a tendency um, for, for protest and anger. And rather than the act of protest, I want to focus on kind of anger and resentment. Mm. But there are some do-gooders who I think get caught up in the notion of anger and and then their anger sometimes leads to resentment and bitterness. Mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't seem very productive to me. And if, I, I know a lot of very nice people who sit and watch the nightly news, and especially did during the Bush regime, and were just seething with fury yeah. uh, night after night and after night. And, you know, I, I don't see the point in being unhappy. I mean, I find that most of the people I know are wonderful people doing good things, and I want to nurture those good people doing good things. Mm-hmm. And I find that once people start to take action, and there's nothing so inspiring as creating an organization, I find that they're happier and more, more fulfilled. You know, they can still sign a petition or a protest letter or so forth and this and that, but I think instead of being stuck in a dead-end job and resentful and angry, uh, you know, if you need to take a pay cut and, you know, live on the edge of uh, destitution for a few years where you'll get an enterprise going, so be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you feel so alive. And, and by the way, entrepreneurial risk is real, too. There's sort of a romance of the entrepreneur that we, we actively cultivate, but I always want to remind people it could mean that you lose your home or, you know, you yeah. pay your you know, bills or something. It's, it's very real, but you're very alive. You're very alive while you're crying, like, I can't pay my bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you know and, and, and I, 
I understand that, and I also know that there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, people, the fear around not not being protected, not having, you know, not keep, being able to keep the food, shelter, etc., which is the Maslow's hierarchy um, language. You know, I mean, what? How do you coach entrepreneurs to move past that? Well, I, I think people need to come to terms with really what they do need and what's important in their life and what they're willing to what they're willing to give up up if need be. And what one of the best accounts of an entrepreneur that I read is after saying there is real risk. It's not that entrepreneurs are risk takers. It's not like you know they're gamblers or they're motorcycle stuntmen or something. It's more that at some point an entrepreneur becomes so attached to their vision, to his or her vision, that the the act of manifesting that vision becomes more important than everything. I mean, maybe not more important than the children or the wife or you know family. There are some things that are more important, and you stop the business in order to protect them. But um, you know. As compared to conventional lifestyle, I would say most entrepreneurs become so excited by their dream that they are willing to sacrifice other kinds of comforts that most people think they could not do without mm-hmm. uh, because their life would be a failure if they did not do everything they could to manifest their vision. Hmm. Well, and so what you're talking about is um, people who absolutely cannot not do what they need to do. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Carl Jung said that um, if if we do not manifest our vision, life is wasted. And mm. our, our essence, not our vision, our essence. If if we do not manifest our essence, life is wasted. Mm. I think entrepreneurs are people who have there's something that is they've touched their essence, and their essence uh, is something that needs to be one needs to give birth to it in the real world. And once once you know what you need to give birth to, you, there's, you, you can't even stop it. You just have to do it. Well, do you believe that um, somebody who has an entrepreneurial spirit could work inside of a corporation and, you know... Well, sure, that there, there are corporations that allow for entrepreneurs, and, you know, sometimes there are people within organizations that say, I have this idea, I want the freedom to do this, and I'm willing to take responsibility for doing it. If it fails, I'm willing to, you know, take the consequences. Um, and I think more and more organizations are creating space for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that that boundary is far more fluid than than one usually expects. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, really, it is that act of creation. And again, it can also be nonprofit or you know even when social life. I think of somebody who introduces a new social norm as a very different kind of uh, you know social norm entrepreneur. Where suppose you know all of your friends think that they have to go out and get stinking drunk on a Friday night, and you say. How about, you know, let's spend an evening talking together. Mm-hmm. You can have wine or whatever, but, you know, any, any sort of take to change things is what we see as a fundamental entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. So give us an example of an entrepreneur who you have great admiration for that um, people may recognize their name. Um, well, you know, a, a good example that's different from... John Mackey, of course, would be Kip Tyndall, who is the CEO of the Container Store. Mm. Kip, as it turns out, Kip and John were roommates at UT Austin in the 1970s okay. uh, for a brief period, and they separated and you know were completely unaware of each other until they both popped up as CEOs of major companies. And um, Kip is just one of the nicest, most mild-mannered fellows you'd ever meet. You know, I, I think you know even I, for some, had the sort of notion that. CEOs of corporations are probably 
you know, egotistical and pull themselves and so forth. Um, but Kip is just a nice guy, you know, and he clearly cares about people. He cares about doing the right thing. You know, a little bit of a Boy Scout in him who, you know, I'm sure he's very honest and dots his I's and crosses his T's. Uh, but, you know, he happened to love organization. And for somebody who loves organization, how natural is it to create a store right. that helps people organize their lives? And so in a way, you know, things like Apple computers and Whole Foods are very glamorous. Uh, in a certain sense, and, you know, Richard Branson, very glamorous. There's a way in which, you know, I, I, as somebody who's not very organized myself, I have great appreciation for those human beings for whom organization is natural. And so I love the notion that this guy who loves organization, just a modest, decent human being, says, let's share this with the world, and voila, um, he becomes the CEO of a great company that's been on the fortune list of 100 best companies to work for every year since the inception of that list. Yeah. You know, people um, who do what they love and um, don't think it's any big deal because it become, it comes so easy to them, um, it seems like a, a lot of big ideas and organizations are born out of that. And so is there a way to nurture that so people can recognize that more as a business opportunity or an offer in the world versus it's just something I do? Well, um, that's that's a great, great question. Of course, you immediately trigger my uh, evangelical educator impulse, where I say that uh, John Taylor Gatto is a New York was twice named New York State Teacher of the Year, and he describes conventional education as 13 years of training in passivity and dependence. So the first thing I would do is transform education. You know, my version is Montessori and Socratic, so that young people are are taught to think their own thoughts, develop their own ideas, and become become their essential in Jung's terms. Um, because I think a lot of people are afraid to be different from other people and afraid to be themselves and afraid to tap into what they have, their unique contribution to the world. Um, you know, very often I, I've found as a Socratic educator, I'm, I'm opening people up to the possibility that they don't need to, uh, you know, follow conventional norms. They can think their own thoughts and be what they want to be. As to transferring that to an entrepreneurial endeavor, I think that's another thing that's interested me because I would say a bias, even among Socratic intellectuals such as myself, is towards the intellectual. I mean, uh, as much as I love learning, I, and I spent, a, you know, basically until the age of 30, I was at university and when I was in a PhD program, there's a, there is a bias towards study and reflection rather than action. And so I think the next stage in the ideal education is to move from, okay, you can think your own thoughts and, you know, figure out who you really are, but then it is how do you create an organization? Um, the, the path of creating an organization is, is really an adventure, and unless you know an entrepreneur or have seen the process, uh, school teaches you absolutely nothing about how to create an organization from scratch. So I, I, I'm very interested in the whole issue of entrepreneurial education, uh, the Acton MBA program in Austin is a good entrepreneurial MBA program. Mm -hmm. There's also something called the Bootstrap Network in Austin, which is kind of a, a community of entrepreneurs bootstrapping, that is, with no capital at all. And then there are a number of other models of empowerment education where people say, and this is how you create an organization that will manifest your dreams, should you so choose to do so. That is fascinating. Well, we have more to talk about with Michael Strong when we come right back. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Michael Strong today, co-founder of Flow Incorporated. Now, Michael, you say that um, the tagline for Flow is liberating the entrepreneurial spirit for good. I love that because it's like a double entendre, you know. It's liberating it for good, like finally, and liberating it for good as in doing well. And, you know, I'm curious about Flow, the organization. When... You began when you created Flow. You and John Mackey created Flow in 2002 as an idea. And my first exposure to Flow, I think, was in 2006, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that's when you brought it forward in San Francisco. And so what I experienced then were people who said, well, yeah, this is interesting, but what what do you do? You know, they mm-hmm. kept saying about flow, what does flow do? And you know, what was your answer to them? That's a great that's a great question. Uh, I would say that uh, we are still getting that question. We're still explaining, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually uh, I, I see four things that we do. One is to provide a vision, which most people don't really realize is something, and yet uh, to entrepreneurs, vision is everything. Uh, vision is the first step to creating reality. And so uh, in a world in which most people are either thinking business is business or doing good is doing good, or maybe they're beginning to see an intersection between business and doing good, but even so, it's uh, maybe how can business do less bad or how can nonprofits earn revenue. We're offering something that I would say is fundamentally bigger and different, which is a vision for how 
entrepreneurs can solve very substantial global problems working together within appropriate legal systems. Um, so there's vision. Uh, the next part is community. In our early flow meetings, what we heard most was people saying, oh, at last I found my tribe. Mm. Uh, as with John and I, they had felt as though you know, most business people didn't understand their desire to do good. A lot of the do-gooders didn't understand their desire to manifest to doing good by means of business. And mm-hmm. it was great to have an ecosystem full of people that were busy solving their own problems. You know, How do you meet a payroll and at the same time really do the best for your employees? Mm-hmm. And how do you balance all of these trade-offs that we have to figure out every day? Um, so in addition to the, the network and community, there, well, I mean, in addition to the community, there is a network. So beyond the community, we have flow activation circles in um, Austin and New York, and uh, occasionally, if one still meets in San Francisco, we have a much broader network where people interested in, say, green energy or in uh, fair trade products or in some kind of developing world, uh, you know, specific uh, company. Mm-hmm. We ha- we have networks where we can say, oh, well, you know, you want to do something in Liberia? We've got these people doing this in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do something with, you know, organic produce. We've got these people doing the organic produce and so forth and so on. So we do spend a lot of time connecting people. And at our conferences, people often connect mm-hmm. with each other. Uh, and sometimes this includes investors and entrepreneurs, and sometimes it includes uh, people interested in writing and thinking and talking about these things. Mm-hmm. So there's very much that kind of network. And then finally, we have promotional programs. We have three specific promotional programs. One is Conscious Capitalism, which I mentioned earlier, and that has regular conferences. Uh, John has an audio CD, Passion and Purpose, The Power of Conscious Capitalism, that's available at Whole Foods checkout counters, as well as through Sounds True, the publisher. Um, and... The idea is to integrate you know, the, the material with a community of practitioners who are trying to design kind of a template for creating conscious capitalist companies in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. In addition to the conscious capitalism, we have a program called Peace Through Commerce, which convenes those people actively using business and commerce to create peace. Um, we're working in one case with uh, a man in the U.S. military who's obtained the freedom from regular military channels to convene NGOs, business, and different government agents to try to collaborate in uh, conflict zones or zones recovering from conflict. Because uh, in many cases, if a country is coming out of a conflict, having a successful economy is the most important thing to keep it out of the conflict. Liberia is a case in point. The first female head of state there is trying to make sure that Liberia does not collapse back into civil war. And she's very much interested in you know, business and investment and starting, starting the economy to roll. Um, that's one of a number of regions around the world where uh, by encouraging people to see business as playing a significant role in peace, we hope to get business to put more, invest more time and money there. Consumers, we'd, we want to create a peace consumers movement. So just like there's a green consumer movement where people buy green to save the environment, we feel as if it's important to create a peace consumers movement where people buy from these companies that are trying to get uh, create peace and stability on the ground in post-conflict zones. Uh, because in many cases, you know, it's a year or two, three years, if things, the economy doesn't take off, it could collapse again. Uh, so there's a really fascinating community around peace through commerce. And we also have one called Accelerating Women Entrepreneurs, where many people know the microfinance movement 
know, Muhammad Yunus and Grameen Bank uh, launched a global movement which now reaches 110 million women receiving microloans. But in addition to the micro-entrepreneur movement, which has been fabulous, we want to see women in the developing world create larger companies. What if women in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Nigeria mm-hmm. and so forth were running $5 million companies, $10 million companies? Um, we believe that that would fundamentally change the social structure and power dynamics of those countries. Mm-hmm. And again, there's a very simple buy women entrepreneurs products movement that we're working to create mm-hmm. um, so that people who want to support women's empowerment can do more than, you know, again, protest. Protest is fine, and a petition is fine, but you start putting uh, cash in their pockets by means of buying their products, and you're going to give women a lot more power in the developing world than just about any other means. Very so we have those very three focused programs in addition to kind of our broader umbrella. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the male versus female entrepreneur or the um, masculine and feminine energies, not necessarily gender, um, mm-hmm. around entrepreneurial leadership. Um, do you? What is your perspective on that? Well, it's a great question and, of course, controversial because some people say we shouldn't talk about these things, but, hey, let's jump in there. Um, you know, microfinance actually has been a great pioneer in this because uh, there are studies that show that when women get the money, most of it goes to feed and care for children. When men get the money, it often goes towards, you know, gambling, alcohol, and women. And that's uh, kind of a harsh statement, but, you know, my understanding is there have been studies that, pretty much show that. And it's not, of course, an absolute thing. It's a propensity. But if we want to benefit the next generation and you know, help women, it's just a more direct path to uh, help fund women. Again, not under some women who don't, but it's just a simple, simple way to look at how to get money in a way that helps children more effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, one of the interesting things we've discovered is we're working with women entrepreneurs and we're co- compiling a book of uh, stories by women entrepreneurs is that a lot of them have a hard time really developing kind of the confidence uh, to be an entrepreneur. I think all entrepreneurs, uh, you know, it takes an extraordinary level of confidence and self-determination. But I think it's especially harder for women because many women are not trained to believe in themselves. I, I, I do think that men tend to be egotistical. Um, you know, again, maybe not all men, but there's a, a joke that I like where uh, this man and woman are going out on a date and the man spends three or four hours talking about his business and his dreams and what he's doing and everything. And at the end of the date, he turns to her and he says, well, enough about me. What do you think of my dreams? <laughs> Maybe a bit harsh, but I think there's something to that. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, then there's another true anecdote where uh, there's a, a woman who's the head of an op-ed section of a major daily paper, and she was asked why she didn't publish more women female and writers. And she said, well, I go to the women who are the world's leading experts on a subject and ask them to prepare an op-ed for me, and they say, yeah, I'll get you something in the next four to six weeks. But the fact is she needs it tomorrow, where she'll talk to a man who has no expertise on a subject at all, and he'll come up with an opinion on the spot. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, it's just that's why she's, she does it. And what, what we're finding is uh, even getting women to tell their own entrepreneurial stories, a lot of them are hesitant to talk about themselves um, so one of the things that's interesting to us in terms of liberating the entrepreneurial spirit for good is that perhaps it's easier to liberate male entrepreneurial spirits, um, you know, for good, maybe a different issue, but for, in some sense, whereas women maybe need a little bit more cultivation. Just one more kind of fact point on that. Um, 
Nell Merlino is one of our colleague partners in the Accelerating Women Entrepreneurs Project, and she has a project called Make Mine a Million, designed to help um, a million women develop million-dollar businesses in the U.S. And her research shows that there are plenty of women entrepreneurs in the U.S., about as many as there are male entrepreneurs. But the vast majority of women entrepreneurs keep their businesses small. And part of it is they're afraid that if they grow their businesses, they will you know, not have time for their families and so forth. But Nell makes the case and has shown has studies showing that if you can grow your business to a certain level, instead of dominating your time, you actually at that point can delegate to professional managers and have more freedom. Mm-hmm. And so her whole project is to develop an ecosystem for nurturing women's women's businesses so they can grow and become a much larger scale. So there, there are a lot of interesting issues in that. So did this came out of flow? Absolutely. Well, Make Mine a Million, Mel Merlino did that independently of us. Mm-hmm. Um, she, by the way, is the woman responsible for Take Your Daughter to Work Day, mm-hmm. which I think is a fabulous social entrepreneurial mm-hmm. endeavor on its own. But this is her next big project. But, of course, we identified her as a uh, like-minded colleague and uh, in- included her in part of our Accelerated Women sure. Entrepreneurs Network. Sure. Well, it's amazing work that you're doing in, in nurturing the, the creative in people. I want to talk more about this and some of the work you're doing abroad when we come back right after this message. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back. We're talking with Michael Strong today, co-founder of Flow Incorporated and author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. So, Michael, you've really done a good job of helping us understand, you know, how nurturing the creative in people can make big things happen. So let's talk a little bit about you and how you know, what exactly you are doing to nurture the creative in yourself. I know you have um, work that you are doing in combination with Flow and outside of Flow. And tell us a bit about some of your projects. Sure. Well, I, I would I would divide them into two categories. On the one, I, I'm one of those people who loves to read, write, and think. And 
when people, you know, sometimes on a website you're asked to say, what are your hobbies? And people have all sorts of things. I'm afraid my main hobby is things I love to do are read, writing, and thinking. <laughs> so uh, um, I've written a book. We'll talk about that later, a couple of books. And I've got other books I want to write, and I write articles, and it's just uh, a blast. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, I've, I'm right now involved in a couple of projects in Senegal that you know, came through our various networks. And it's great for me while, you know, reading, writing, and talking about entrepreneurial endeavors to be actively engaged in some on-the-ground projects with all of the, uh, you know, difficulties. You know, again, as an idealist, I'm often running off into this beautiful rhetoric, and the fact is, on the ground, it's sometimes dirty and difficult. Mm. Um, so tell us about two, Senegal. Sure. I was going to say I'm involved in two projects in Senegal. One is, um, a couple of years ago, I met a man who's the vice president for international relations at the Dallas Mavericks named Amadou Gallo Fall. And Gallo, as we call him, had started a school in Senegal to train basketball players uh, in both academics and basketball to come to the U.S. It turns out there are a lot of very tall athletic people in Senegal. Um, Quinn Snyder, who used to be the head coach at the University of Missouri, had read several of my articles on education and loved my writing on education and connected me to Gallo, who was a friend of his. And... uh, as a consequence, I've become involved as an academic advisor for the school. Uh, Seeds Academy, as it is known, has already gotten two players into the NBA, two Senegalese players, but and dozens into the NCAA, but only one out of ten, realistically, will become a professional player. The other nine out of ten need to come to the U.S. and get a great education so that they can go back to Senegal and really help uh, develop the economy there and uh, you know, create jobs and success. So my job with respect to this school is to really uh, create a world-class educational institution while also developing world-class basketball players. Mm-hmm. And it's fun and interesting to be around all these tall people. When I go there on trips, mm-hmm. there are often a lot of NBA types around, and uh, I'm, I'm a solid six feet, and it's fun to be the shortest guy around. <laughs> oh. no, and they're all really good people, too, just wonderful, wonderful hearts. Everybody involved with that project is mm-hmm. great. And on the other hand, I'm also working with a woman entrepreneur whom I met through our Accelerating Women Entrepreneurs program named Magat Wade. Magat is a Senegalese entrepreneur who was raised in Senegal, educated in France, and had a professional career in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And as an adult, she went back to Senegal and discovered that the hibiscus beverage she'd grown up on was gradually being replaced by Coca-Cola. And she was outraged, yet she realized the Senegalese would only drink their traditional Senegalese hibiscus beverage if it was sold successfully in the U.S. So she created Adina World Beverages and began to sell hibiscus beverage in the U.S. Um, and it's now a successful company carried in Whole Foods and Wegmans and other, other major retail chains. And she's now moved on to create a second company, which is designed to sell high-end lifestyle products um, based on the notion of Africa is as cool and wonderful. One of the things that frustrates her is Africa has been branded as pathetic and that, mm. you know, it, yes, it's nice to help poor Africans, but as a very capable, competent, uh, you know, I would say cool and amazing African herself, mm. uh, it's important that the world understand that Africa is more than starving children and yeah. war. There are, you know, great, capable human beings that want to produce goods and sell them here, and so she's designing a whole line of top high-end products that will change the way people perceive Africa and also change the way Africans perceive themselves. Um, one of, part of her dream is to create the first billion-dollar African 
brand. Uh, right now, South African Airways is the best-known African brand, and uh-huh. that's not exactly typical African. Uh-huh. And it's kind of interesting to think about uh, entrepreneurship doing good is not merely by means of helping people. A lot of time when, times when Magat presents her new company, people say, well, but are you digging wells or something? And she, she has to explain this is not about digging a well for poor people. Yes, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. But there are other things that these people need, and a sense of being involved uh, at a pure level in global culture is one of those. So it's, it's really exciting to get to know, you know Senegalese culture and how that can contribute uh, at, a, at the very highest levels to global culture. Now, part of that vision is if you look, if you Google contemporary Asian design, you'll see a lot of elegant, beautiful things. And as someone who lives in the Bay Area, you know, there are great contemporary Asian restaurants, contemporary Asian art, contemporary Asian mm-hmm. fashion, etc. Um, we're not quite in the same place with contemporary African, but Magat's going to make that happen. So it's, it's interesting to be involved both on the basketball academic side and with the kind of culture, fashion, design side. Um, getting to know all sorts of things about Senegal in a very intimate, uh, upfront way. Well, you know, I, I wonder about um, when someone like that who is so visionary and has the skills and has the confidence to ask for what she needs and collaborate with people to make things happen. Um, you know, those are skills that not everybody has. And, you know, she may have access that um, many folks don't have. And so, you know, how do you propose that people develop that in themselves? Well, that, that is an interesting issue, which in some ways goes back to the, inter- the issue of entrepreneurial education. Mm-hmm. That said, there's, uh, I'm going to give a little interesting anecdote about Magat, which I think is telling. There is a sense in which I think there's a propensity for us to think of people in countries as oppressed and passive and so forth. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that I love that Magat tells about her childhood is she was a sort of young girl at the age of six, seven, eight, nine where every day she would go out and all the boys in the neighborhood be, would be waiting out for her in the yard to go and play. And she would lead them on hunting expeditions and fishing expeditions and capturing sheep and you know hiding and digging and tunneling. And basically she was a tomboy who told all the little boys what to do all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you know we've all known a girl who happened to do that uh, here or there. And I love the thought that there's this you know young Senegalese girl who's telling the boys what to do and leading them on the hunting and fishing expeditions. Mm-hmm. And she grows up to be an entrepreneur, um, creating multi-million dollar companies. You know? um, as much as I love entrepreneurial education, I think there's something to be said, too, for just somebody who has that in them. That said, Magat will admit that coming to Silicon Valley really sort of ignited her, that uh-huh. seeing real people create, you know, she was, she was in the heart of Silicon Valley in the late 90s, uh, at the boom, and she saw all these companies being created out of nothing. She saw Google when it looked like it might fail, you know, and, and that kind of gives you a sense that it's not just about leading the boys to play. It's, hey, let's take this energy and create a real company out of it. Right. Well, you know, I, I want to talk about your book. We have a, just a couple minutes left. Um, you have the belief that doing business and doing good, you know, don't have to be um, separate, that it can be one and the same. And you've written in your book that, you know, because we, and we spoke earlier about how, because people are looking for meaning and purpose, that, you know, now's the time. So tell us a little bit more about what the message you want people to take away from your book. Sure. And the book, uh, Be the Solution to How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can All the World's Problems, is mostly by me. There are chapters by uh, Muhammad Yunus, 
the Grameen Bank founder and 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, there's a, chapter, a couple of chapters by John Mackey of Whole Foods, chapter by Hernando de Soto, the co-chair of the U.S. Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor, and a number of chapters by other people. Um, the idea is to create a really diverse uh, set of perspectives on how entrepreneurs and conscious capitalists really can solve problems. Mm -hmm. um, part of this is giving people a much broader sense of what an entrepreneur is, and I've tried to do that in this radio interview. Part of it that we haven't gotten into in this context is how the legal system determines which entrepreneurial options mm -hmm. are possible and how to shift the legal systems around so that we can have more positive entrepreneurship. Just a super simple example of that is a green tax shift, where insofar as at present we tax employment and savings and investment, we are encouraging people not to create jobs, not to save, and not to invest. Uh, if instead we taxed pollution, then we would be encouraging people to tax pollution to, do, to pollute less, but to create more jobs, invest more, and save more. One famous example of that is Al Gore had proposed, uh, based on an idea by the economist Bernie Monk, to exchange um, all payroll taxes for carbon taxes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So instead of paying uh, Social Security um, and so forth, we would tax carbon and completely eliminate payroll taxes. That would wow. allow us to create a lot more jobs while, at the same time, reducing uh, our dependence on oil and carbon emissions. So th that's the sense in which when we say entrepreneurs can solve all problems, it doesn't mean, given our present legal systems, we want people to think creatively about how do we tweak the rules around so we can solve more problems faster by, as entrepreneurs? Well, there's an awful lot of opportunity for things to change, and we certainly are in a transformative moment in our history. And you're doing your part, Michael. Thanks so much for being here today. Um, if people want to learn more about you and where to buy the book, Be the Solution, what can they do? They can go to our website, www.flowidealism.org. Uh, flowidealism.org, and you can buy the book through a link at the site. Great. Well, thank you again. It's been great. I think you're going to have to come back again so that we can get even deeper into transforming some of the systems and structures for the better. So thank, thank you, you, Michael. Thank you so much, Cheryl. We'll talk again. Remember, okay. everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 